This is Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. I'd like to talk with you about the Sackendauga Reservoir. This was a recent column in the Daily Gazette. Also had a very interesting follow-up about the creation of the Sackendauga Reservoir, which took place in 1930 and was the culmination of an immense engineering project that radically changed people's lives and the geography of the southern Adirondacks. Sackendauga, by the way, is a Native American word. Many think that it means flowing grass. Others think it means drowned land. Before creation of the reservoir, it was the Sackendauga River, an unchecked tributary of the upper Hudson River. So much water was poured into the Hudson by the Sackendauga River that Albany, Waterville, Troy, Green Island, other capital district communities were subject to frequent floods. The floods in 1913 were particularly severe, and the idea of a flood control reservoir slowly gained traction in the state capital at Albany. In 1922, the state appointed a board to execute the project. Their motto was, Tame the Hudson by Taming the Sacandaga River. Residents of the Sacandaga Valley were skeptical as work gangs arrived, many from outside the area, to prepare for the multi-million dollar venture, cutting trees, tearing down farm buildings and villages, even moving cemeteries. A merry-go-round with handmade horses at an amusement park operated by the Fonda Johnstown and Gloversville Railroad was disassembled and taken to the Shelburne Village Museum in Vermont because the amusement park, too, was destined to be flooded. Former Fulton County historian William Loveday said, For a lot of them, it was their family land for generations. They just hated to leave. They had to take the state estimates for the land. That caused a lot of bad feeling. Other people could see the benefits of it. There were terrible floods from Wells down to Northville and along the Hudson River in the last year before the reservoir was created. The chief engineer of the massive reservoir project was Edward Haynes Sargent, a Massachusetts native who married a woman from Northville, Emma Olmsted. Sargent met Olmsted when he was doing survey work in the Sacandaga Valley. Sargent, who was trained at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is buried at the Edinburgh Cemetery, and his tombstone is the only one in the cemetery that faces the lake that he created. A major piece of the project was construction of the Conklingville Dam in Hadley. According to former Fulton County historian Bill Loveday, a workforce of 1,200 men was required for the dam construction alone. That began in November 1927. The dam is made mostly of earth and stone fill with a core of hardened cement. People came from miles around to watch construction of the 95-foot-high structure. According to the town of Edinburgh history, buildings not moved by 1929 were torn down or burned. An estimated 1,100 people were forced to abandon their homes. Russell Dunn, author of Adventures Around Great Sacandaga Lake, said, quote, In the fall of 1929, many people 
deliberately drove through the Sacandaga Valley, winding their way along the interconnecting roads through villages that no longer existed and past forests that no longer held trees simply because they knew they could never do it again. In the spring of 1930, the time had come to abandon hamlets such as Osborne's Bridge, Day Center, and Huntsville. Former Fulton County historian Bill Loveday said, On March 27, 1930, a quiet ceremony took place at the Conklingville Dam. Chief Engineer Sargent turned the valves to close the gates and commence the flooding of the Sacandaga Valley. Creation of the 29-mile-long reservoir enabled people, many from Johnstown, Gloversville, Amsterdam, and Schenectady, to build relatively inexpensive camps on this brand-new lake in the 1940s and 1950s. It was called the Sacandaga Reservoir for many years, but seeing the potential for tourism promotion, the state legislature changed the reservoir's name to Great Sacandaga Lake in 1961. They didn't want to name it Sacandaga Lake because that's already the name of a smaller lake in Speculator. The Great Sacandaga Lake's role as a flood control reservoir has created issues over the years for recreational users as the lake's level fluctuates, sometimes drastically, depending on flood control needs. There was a recent column on the topic of the Sacandaga Reservoir's uh, creation. Shortly after the column appeared in the newspaper, I received an email uh, from a, a gentleman who had some important information to impart. Dudley Dennison Fink is his name. He said, I read with interest your article in the Daily Gazette regarding creation of Sacandaga Reservoir in the 1920s. As you so well point out, it was one of the most important projects to ever take place in Fulton and Saratoga counties. My mother used to tell me stories about her father taking the family on Sundays from Johnstown to Conklingville to follow the progress of the dam being constructed. There's one point I'd like to correct. My grandfather, who was an attorney, Alfred Dennison, he was also the district attorney of Fulton County for some time, and Alfred Dennison represented the farmers who lost their farms to form the Sacandaga Reservoir. At first, the farmers were not offered adequate compensation, uh, but the gentleman, Mr. Fink writes, as a result of his grandfather's efforts on their behalf, the farmers ended up with fair settlements. And uh, Dudley Dennison Fink goes on to say, a few years ago, Bill Loveday visited me at my summer home in Canada Lake, wrote an article about my uh, grandfather, Alfred Dennison, being the founder of the Nick Stoner Golf Course. My grandfather was the driving force behind a number of philanthropic efforts, both in Johnstown and at Caroga Lake, and he was proud of the job he did representing the farmers during the Sacandaga Project. My new book, Lost Mohawk Valley, is out now. Life in the Mohawk Valley today is vastly different from generations ago. Long gone are the factory whistles calling workers to their shifts in old mill towns like Amsterdam and Fort Plain. And Fort Plain still benefits from little-known inventor William Yurden. And baseball player George Burns, with ties to Gloversville and Utica, is remembered. He was so skilled that fans called 
left field Burnsville. Few realize that a local artist shared a special bond with musician John Philip Sousa. The Tamarack Playhouse in the Adirondacks was once the venue of spectacular theatricals, and as time goes on, there are fewer alumni to remember Amsterdam's Bishop Scully High School. These stories and more are in my new book, Lost Mohawk Valley, uh, which is published by History Press, showing that while lost, these and other compelling stories no longer need be uh, forgotten. A Lost Mohawk Valley has a very interesting cover showing a speed skating team uh, from uh, old Fort Johnson back in the early 1940s. One member of that team qualified for the 1940 Olympics on the American speed skating team, but unfortunately there were no Olympics that year because of the war. Other skaters from Fort Johnson scored high marks nationally in speed skating. So Lost Mohawk Valley is available. It's available at bookstores such as uh, the Bookhound in Amsterdam and at Old Peddler's Wagon, 175 Church Street in Amsterdam. Many other stores. You can order it uh, by mail uh, from uh, yours truly, Bob Cudmore, at uh, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Now back to another story from Focus on History, my weekly column in the Daily Gazette. Sometimes I just like the uh, to follow up on what people write me about. And I have a, had a gentleman who uh, made a, wrote me, and then uh, we talked on the phone several times, uh, talking about not a, you know by, by any means a, a world-shaking incident uh, that affected his family. Uh, they were from Amsterdam. Uh, back in the 1930s and 1940s. But it's kind of a cute story, and it has dogs in it. People like dogs, right? No no question there. The story was titled, Dogs Named for a Legislator. State Senator William Byrne from Albany gave a spaniel to the Houston family of Amsterdam in the 1930s. Byrne was born in 1876 on Bean Hill Road near the hamlet of Minaville in the town of Florida, which is across the Mohawk River from Amsterdam. Byrne's parents were Richard Henry Byrne, a carpenter, and Margaret Manifold Byrne, a schoolteacher. When Bill Byrne was a youngster, the family moved to Albany, where his father operated a grill on Broadway. An Albany High and Albany Law School graduate, Bill Byrne had an early interest in Democratic Party politics. He attended, as a very young man, the 1896 National Convention, where candidate William Jennings Bryan delivered his famous Cross of Gold speech, opposing the gold standard for American currency. Bill Byrne was a Democrat, but unfortunately for him, the Democrats were not in power in Albany in the early years of the 1900s. So instead, Byrne practiced law, and he was very good at it, developed a lucrative law practice. And when the Democrats got back into power with the rise of the O'Connell machine, the Dan O'Connell machine in the 1920s, Bill Byrne was elected to the state Senate from Albany in 1922. He was a popular and very effective speaker. He was a liberal and a friend of Governors Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt. He was part of Franklin 
Roosevelt's Turkey Cabinet, a group of lawmakers that they used to gather at the executive mansion to advise FDR on state politics. And as a state senator, Byrne was co-sponsor of the legislation that created unemployment insurance. Bill Byrne and his wife, Josephine, lived in Loudonville in a colonial revival house, now on the National Historic Register. Loudonville, kind of a posh suburb of Albany. But the Burns had a summer home on Bean Hill in the town of Florida, near Amsterdam, where Byrne enjoyed scenes from his boyhood. An ardent devotee of exercise, Byrne once walked to Bean Hill from his home in Loudonville. The summer home was adjacent to what was known as the Amsterdam YMCA Farm, later called Camp Ananol. YMCA physical director Leon Prof Houston's family was on an outing one day at the YMCA farm back in the 1930s. One of the five children of Leon Houston and his wife Pearl struck up a conversation with Byrne who was dressed in a very disheveled manner, certainly didn't look like a state senator, and he was sort of at the end of the uh, property of the uh, YMCA, apparently adjacent to his own uh, farm on uh, on Bean Hill Road. Pearl Houston did not know Senator Byrne, so in a protective way, she marched to where her son, who's named Dick, and this disheveled man were talking. Soon she learned she had nothing to fear. When the conversation turned to Byrne's occupation as a state senator and his interest in dogs. And the Houstons were interested in dogs too, but they didn't have one. Well, Senator Byrne said he was acquainted with a breeder of black spaniels who found he could not sell the dogs for show if the puppies had splotches of other colors. Would the Houstons like one of these spaniel rejects? Well, of course, they said they would. Byrne arranged for a dog to be shipped by train to the Houstons, and the family named the dog Senator, Sen for short. The Houston family kept Senator all their years in Amsterdam, but they moved uh, on a YMCA assignment to Holyoke, Massachusetts in 1942. While there, unfortunately, Senator was struck and killed by a car. By then, Bill Byrne was serving in Congress, elected in 1936. When notified of Senator's death, Congressman Byrne shipped another Spaniel by train to the Houstons in Holyoke. The Houstons named the new dog Representative, or Rep for short. Bill Byrne's wife Josephine died in 1948 and was described in the Amsterdam paper as hostess at many gatherings at the summer home. If the congressman was called to Washington in the summer, she typically stayed at Bean Hill. She was a published poet, founder of the Albany Poetry Club, and wrote a newspaper column, They Had No Children. Congressman Byrne died of a cerebral hemorrhage after being taken from his Loudonville home to St. Mary's Hospital in 1952. He was eulogized as the genial gentleman from Albany by then-congressman and future U.S. Senator Jacob Javits. Leo O'Brien succeeded Byrne in Congress and said his constituents sent him scores of letters citing his predecessors countless little acts of goodness and kindness. Peter Houston, one of the children who used to romp with 
Sen, and Rep provided information for this story. For many years, Peter Houston was a teacher at Scotia Glenville High School. This is Bob Cudmore, and you're listening to the Historian's Podcast. A recent uh, podcast featured an interview with author Dave Northrup about his efforts in bringing to publication a history book about the Mohawk Valley that was written many years ago and never published. I also made that the subject of a recent column and a focus on history, and it went something like this. 75-year-old history manuscript finally published. Columnist and reporter Hugh Donlan labored for eight years writing the Mohawk Valley, what he described as a history of the valley from the last ice age to 1940. Donlan, whose full-time job was at the Amsterdam Evening Recorder, finished the manuscript but couldn't get it published. Donlan's son John, who became a nuclear submarine commander, preserved a type copy of his father's work. The manuscript has now been published through the editing efforts of Amsterdam native and author Dave Northrup of the Rochester area. Northrup made only a few changes to correct misspellings and garbled syntax in Donlin's text. My contribution was a biography of the author, who died at age 93 in 1989. Northrup said, The Mohawk Valley shows Donlin's love of the region's geography and its importance in the development of the United States. Northrop said the Mohawk Valley shows Donlin's great knowledge of the area. Donlin quotes Arendt Van Curler, a pioneer Dutch settler, who called the local landscape the most beautiful land that the eye of man ever beheld. Donlin ends his book by pointing out that the valley played an essential role in American history. It was a natural break in the mountains, the great gateway through which the founders of the Republic passed. Over half the book deals with events that took place in the 1600s and 1700s in wars among Indian nations, wars between European colonial powers, and then the American Revolution. The book chronicles the suffering, fear, and exhaustion that accompanied numerous violent raids on local settlements during the American Revolution. Donlin complains that libraries and historical societies have failed to preserve the history of the region after the Revolution, saying priceless papers have been left in long-forgotten attic trunks and other out-of-the-way places. The book is geographically inclusive, making reference to communities ranging from Schenectady and Amsterdam in the east to Utica and Rome in the west. Dave Northrup said the book's only weakness is that it ends in 1940. Since then, there's been dramatic change. Most of the thriving industries that Donlin wrote about, from desk-making in Herkimer to carpet-making in Amsterdam, have disappeared. The Mohawk Valley is full of lists showing dates for the founding of local churches, creation of industries, development of telephone systems, incorporations of municipalities, and the names of Civil War regiments. No doubt the unpublished manuscript was useful to Donlin as background for his later books. His best-known book, Annals of a Mill Town, published in 1980, making him the most widely recognized authority on the history of his native Amsterdam. 
Former Recorder City Editor Brad Broyles said Donlan could sit down at that shockingly green, two-tone royal typewriter of his and bash out paragraph after paragraph on any subject you wanted. Donlan's writing style, said Dave Northrup, is clear, concise, and directed toward an audience of common folk. Little gems of history are included throughout the book. According to Donlan, there was a waltz sung by soldiers in the Civil War called Bonnie Eloise, Belle of the Mohawk Vale. The lyric begins, Oh, sweet is the vale, where the Mohawk gently glides on its clear, winding way to the sea. Donlan wrote, The accepted story as to the song is that it was written by George Eliot about 1858 for his sweetheart, Mary Bowen, while he was traveling in a New York Central train toward Fort Plain. Other sources indicate that Eliot was a poet and editor of a Fort Plain newspaper. The Mohawk Valley by Hugh Donlan, edited by Dave Northrup, cost $24.95. Proceeds benefit the Walter Elwood Museum. Books are available at the museum at 100 Church Street in Amsterdam and at the Bookhound, 16 East Main Street in Amsterdam, and the Old Peddler's Wagon, located at 175 Church Street in Amsterdam. Another story from Focus on History this past summer had to do with clerics on bicycles and the summer of 1886. A clergyman's group called the Clerical Bicyclists reached Amsterdam on August 10, 1886 and stayed at the Warner Hotel on Main Street, according to the Daily Democrat newspaper. The New York Times reported there was another clerical bicycle tour that month along the Hudson River with the destination between a being Howe's Cave. Two of the preachers on the trip to Amsterdam were James Bartley and R.P. Orr. Two pastors, Hadley Jones and E.C. Wheaton, joined the group after traveling 40 miles from Little Falls. The bikers boarded a train in Amsterdam with their bicycles for a trip to Canajoharie. There they went to their wheels and cycled to Sharon Springs for dinner. Then they traveled through the Cherry Valley to Richfield Springs. The Democrat newspaper wrote, Clerical bicycle tours appear to be gaining in favor every year, although there's a still a great deal of prejudice against this healthful recreation on the part of the clergy. We might wonder why, uh, but the news, why there was prejudice against uh, clergymen, ministers, and so forth riding bicycles. But the newspapers sided with the holy wheelmen and dismissed criticism coming from some good old souls who did not think it was proper for men of the cloth to ride to church or to visit the sick on a bicycle. The newspaper wrote, the clergy ought to take more exercise than they do. And it would be well for them, perhaps, if they would lay aside their dignity once in a while. Battling Politicians A rowdy picnic held for knitting mill workers early in August 1886 was deplored from the pulpit of Amsterdam's St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church by Reverend John Mackencrow. The Morning Sentinel reported Father Mackencrow said, A heavy responsibility rested upon the souls of those members of St. Mary's Church 
who gave their countenance and support to the affair. A dispute between two young political partisans, Republican John McGrady and Democrat John Bulger, began at the picnic but concluded at the bar of the Windsor restaurant. McGrady and Bulger came to blows, and the fight ended when McGrady apparently bit Bulger's ear. Blood gushed freely, and a piece of the ear hung down, reported the newspaper. The wound was dressed, and Bulger was expected to recover. McGrady denied biting the ear, contending the damage was done by a blow from his fist. A Slippery Rascal A man called the notorious Bob Bell was finally brought to justice in August 1886. Bell had been arrested in Fonda for stealing $15 from James Keogh of Amsterdam in October 1885. Held at Fonda's County Jail, Bell slipped past the turnkey or jail guard and escaped. He was recaptured at his home on Reed Street in Amsterdam and placed in the city's police lockup. He escaped early in the morning of the following day, wrote the Daily Democrat, by digging his way through the wall with the assistance of friends on the outside. Police spotted Bell in Amsterdam in July, but he eluded them. August 11th, Bell was found at a boarding house in Arietta in Hamilton County and returned to Amsterdam. Actor Stricken. In August 1886, a British-born actor whose stage name was George Lascelles died at Mrs. McCann's boarding house on Amsterdam's East Main Street. Lascelles, in his 60s, had been performing with Colonel William Eading's dramatic company at the Potter Opera House on Market Street. The night before, Lascelles had complained he wasn't feeling well from a long-standing rupture. When Mrs. McCann checked on him early in the morning, he was found dead, but on his hands and knees. According to a newspaper account, suspicion of suicide was ruled out by an autopsy. A coroner's jury found that actor Lascelles died from a strangulated hernia. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Remember, my new book is now out, Lost Mohawk Valley. Among the stories, one about ball player George Burns and his ties to Gloversville. Sports enthusiast Mike Hauser has a personal stake in advocating National Baseball Hall of Fame status for George Joseph Burns, who played the best years in baseball with the New York Giants. Burns was the brother of Mike Hauser's great-grandfather on his mother's side. Locally, Burns was inducted into the Fulton County Baseball and Sports Hall of Fame over the past summer. George Burns was born in Utica in 1889, lived in Little Falls and St. Johnsville before the family moved to Gloversville, where they operated a Main Street pool hall. In 1910, Burns was in Utica watching a minor league team, the Utica Harps. The Harps catcher didn't show up, and the team asked Burns to play. He did so well that the team hired Burns as a catcher. From there, he was spotted by the New York Giants, and went down for the 1911 season, but spent most of it on the bench, absorbing the wisdom of manager John McGraw. Because of his speed and strong throwing arm, McGraw assigned Burns to left field for the Giants in 1912. The left field of the polo grounds became known as 
Burnsville. When he retired, Burns total of 1,844 games in the outfield ranked sixth in the National League history. He stole home 21 times in his career. Burns was one of the first baseball players to use sunglasses and wear a long-billed cap. He was also very polite and was proud of the fact that he was never ejected from a Major League Baseball game. One of the stories in Lost Mohawk Valley about ball player George Burns and his ties to Gloversville. I'm Bob Cudmore, and you've been listening to the Historian's Podcast.